0: Gracious Father, we thank you that we could gather together this morning as your people. It's a great honor and privilege. I pray that this time that we uh, spend considering the life of uh, Lady Catherine Willoughby would be an encouragement, a blessing to us all, and that uh, ultimately, as we look at her life, that we would be reminded that all the great things that she did, any faithfulness she uh, embodied, was all a gift of your sovereign grace. And so, to you alone be the glory. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen. So this is our uh, fifth or sixth year doing biographies during the month of October. And this has been a time that I look forward to every year, both listening to the other gentlemen who have been teaching lessons and also getting the opportunity to present one of them myself. However, as I look back at many of the uh, different figures we've studied over the years, I I have to admit, not all of them uh, would have lives that would translate greatly into movies, Pastors and theologians don't necessarily uh, oftentimes live the kind of lives that make make this stuff of Hollywood. And I think we can agree with this while still enjoying these biographies because a lot of what brings them interest is uh, their broader context of the time in which they lived and also seeing their intellectual contribution that they've given to history. Uh, This isn't to, to, to deny that some of them did really live interesting lives in and of themselves. I think of Luther or Augustine or Guido de Bray. But then there were others maybe less interesting. Well, this morning's person I would put near the top, if not at the top, as far as her life would make a phenomenal movie. So if we have anybody film producers in here, <laughs> I would highly encourage you to look into the possibility of making a film of her life. And so this morning's uh, Sunday school lesson, if it falls completely flat, it is my fault completely and not hers. Because uh, it is, I just thoroughly enjoyed studying her life. And so, what is about her life? Just to give you a snapshot, why I'm so excited about uh, presenting her this morning and why I find her so early fascinating. Well, she was a connected member of the British aristocracy uh, during the time of the Reformation, and she had pretty much close ties with all the kings and queens of her day. Uh, at one point in time, she was the wealthiest woman in England apart from the Queen. Uh, she was also intricately connected with the Reformation and the Reformers. It felt like every couple of pages there was a new connection with a new, well-known man from the Reformation, whether it was Hugh Latimer or Martin Butzer or Philip Melanchthon or um, John Alasco. Uh, on top of all that, of her connectedness, her life was just filled with drama and suspense. She was married at the age of 14 to a man who was 35 years her senior, uh, later in life, she has to flee the country, and, uh, which in and of itself just seemed like a play-by-play uh, movie scene as I was reading about it. And I read about it in several accounts, and all of them really, it didn't seem like the account that I read was just some sort of exaggerated account. It seriously was a uh, suspenseful scene. And she herself, maybe this is the best of it all, was just full of personality. She had a reputation for her wit, intelligence, and charm. And my favorite is her sense of sarcasm, especially against the, uh, the um, reigning bishop of the day. Now having said all that, we don't generally do biographies just because someone is interesting or they had a suspenseful life or had a big personality. Uh, but fortunately for us this morning, her life is both interesting and full of personality but also very profitable for us as well. Like I mentioned, she lived during the Reformation era in England. And so there is so much in which we are getting kind of a ground-eye view of a lot of the stories that we've heard before of the Reformation. It's also a helpful review of many of the people. She's constantly uh, rubbing shoulders with the people we've heard of from Reformation history as well. But it's not just that, it's not just the setting, it's not just the drama and suspense of her life, it's not just her big personality. But first and foremost, Catherine Willoughby, or Baroness of Willoughby, Duchess of Suffolk, also known as the distinguished patroness of the English reformers, was a woman of character. She was a woman of compassion. She was a woman of conviction, of courage, and of faith. And I hope if nothing else this morning, I make it just abundantly clear how this woman, who again was at one point in time the wealthiest woman in England next to the queen, was also a woman of deep faith as well. Uh, so our outline for this morning is we're going to actually spend just a couple minutes doing a review or overview of the monarchy during her lifetime, just because there are so many names that come up over the course of her biography that I want to bring a lot of those to the fore right at the beginning. Then I will do a sketch of her life without getting too bogged down in any of the stories. And then at the end, I will do a thematic look into this more interesting aspects of her life and character. So this morning's PowerPoint is actually only to do this review of the kings and queens of England, and it's in a quiz format. So let's see how you guys are with your Reformation-era church history. You might just recognize this picture, but who was the king of England who was responsible for the English Reformation? That is, he was the one responsible for the departure from the Roman Catholic Church. And if you're really good with your church history, give this one to somebody else. Because I would guess that there's some people who might not know anything else but this one. Who is this? Hmm? All right, we'll take hands. We'll do that. Anybody? Okay. Uh, Mrs. Anderson. You're as bad as I am. names. King Henry VI, you got it. Alright. Okay? King Henry VIII's first wife, mother of Bloody Mary. Anybody got this one? Renee? Catherine of I'm sorry, no. No, 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 no. It was one of the Catherines. Yes. yes. Sorry. Catherine of um, Italy. Um, Spain. 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 Okay. Aragon. Whoops. Aragon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nothing to be sorry about that. Catherine of Aragon, his first wife. Bonus question. Anybody know why she is a particularly important uh, person in the story of the Reformation of England? Yeah, Alex. Uh, So that they could get divorced, that's why they separated from the church? Yeah, the whole Reformation of England, why did they break from the Catholic Church so Henry could divorce her because he had been convinced that they were not going to be able to bear a son because she had previously been married to her brother. Not to her brother, to his brother. And he thought from a passage in the Bible, that they would be uh, cursed from ever having children. Okay, another bonus question. Anybody know how many wives he actually had in total? Six. I heard several people say six, yes. He has six wives in total. I'm not going to go through all of them. But what about his second wife, who was then the uh, mother of Elizabeth I? Anybody have this one? Hmm. Yes? Anne Boleyn. Yep, and his third wife, the mother of Edward the Sixth. you got this one. Mm. It is Jane, but not Gray. Jane Seymour. Okay. We're gonna skip wives four and five. Interesting stories there. <laughs> to his last wife, and her name's already come up, Ray. Catherine Parr, and out of of all the wives, she is a good one to remember. She was a good, uh, devout Christian and uh, Protestant, Catherine Parr. So there's four of his six wives, and they will be coming up. So now let's get to the children who would then be the monarchs, or after him. So after Henry VIII, his son serves for about a period of six years. Anybody know who this is? Edward the First, not Edward the First, Edward the Sixth. And who comes after Edward? Uh, Mary. Mary, bloody Mary. Mary the First. And then? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And that's a very fitting outfit for Elizabeth. (laughs) She really was a grand queen. She served for a long period of time, and things we like about her, things we don't like about her, but... um, overall, she was Protestant, at least helped move us away from Roman Catholicism. Okay, so that's the uh, English monarchs that will set the backdrop for the life of Lady Catherine Willoughby. So uh, Catherine Willoughby is born in 1520, right there, uh, Reformation era. Her father was uh, William Lord Willoughby, Baron of Willoughby. Her mother was uh, Mary of Salinas, and she actually came over from Spain with Catherine of Aragon. She was one of her ladies, in waiting, and uh, would be a dear friend to Catherine of Aragon through to her dying day. She was actually with Catherine on her on her deathbed, uh, attending to her needs in her last moments of life. Um, but uh, Catherine Willoughby's parents uh, passed away when she was pretty young. She was seven, and the way that that would work among a rich aristocratic family at the time is you'd be because oh, and she was the sole heir of the family's entire estate. Both of her brothers had died. And so especially with someone who had inherited such a great amount, they would be made a ward of someone else in the aristocracy. So it began actually with Henry VIII, but then her wardship was sold off to uh, Lord Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk. And it was in his household that she would be uh, raised to the age of 14. Uh, Charles Brandon was also married to Mary Tudor, the wife of Henry, not the wife, the sister of Henry VIII. So we see a close connection here with the royal family. Uh, Charles Brandon was one of Henry VIII's close friends, one of his close friends that actually never had their head chopped off, and and his wife, uh, Mary Tudor, uh, were the ones who would then raise Catherine in their household. And it was in this household that we begin to see some of the first spiritual influences on the life of Catherine Wilby. So from a young age, she's beginning to hear Reformed doctrine. Some of this actually seems, one of the accounts I read seems to say that some of this was coming from Mary herself. That she actually had some deep spiritual wells and was a, a good influence in the right direction for the young Catherine Uh, But then also, within the household, within that Brandon household, they had a chaplain named Alexander Seton. And he was actually a Scottish pastor who had fled persecution in the north. Now, one of the complex things about the whole Reformation era period in trying to figure out, when someone's a Protestant, are they Protestant more for the political reasons or for their theological convictions? Because there are certainly people who are very clearly More on the Protestant side out of convenience, out of political ties. And so even among the clergy, one has to always ask, is this person actually on the Protestant side because they're convicted of the doctrines of the Reformation? Or are they on the Protestant side of things just because of political alliances? Well, Alexander Seton seems to have been a man who was thoroughly convicted of the truth of the Reformation and returning to Scripture, returning to faith alone, through Christ alone. And uh, part of the indication here is that he uh, the fact that he was fleeing persecution for the things that he was teaching, and he would have been one of the earliest uh, influences on Mary's not on Catherine's life. And uh, though we don't have any direct testimony from her saying that it was under his tutelage that she came to these convictions, what we see is that her her whole life seems to be marked with a faithfulness to the teachings that were coming out of the Reformation. So again, she was uh, brought into the wardship of the Brandon household when she was seven, and part of the thought is that she was uh, brought in with the hopes of being married off to the son of Charles Brandon, uh, whose name was Henry Brandon. He was a couple years younger than her, but really that wasn't too significant. But when Catherine was 14 years old, Mary, Mary Brandon, dies. And six weeks later, Charles Brandon, who was 49 years old, decides to marry Catherine himself. Um, now, it is said that she was a very charming young lady, but it seems like, well, that was possibly part of it. But like also, she had inherited this tremendous wealth. Uh, though, we, I don't think we should say that that justifies this match. And while it is true that this wasn't that scandalous at that period of time, And I generally like to think things in their historical context and not impose too many of our modern values when we're judging history. I think this one, we are comfortable to be a little bit shocked and should be a little bit disgusted by it. The truth is, though, it was a scandal in its time, not because of the age gap necessarily, but because uh, Charles Brandon's wife had just died six weeks earlier before he actually tied the knot with Catherine herself. And this is interesting you would think that someone who goes through something like this, it would be quite a scarring thing, maybe even be enough to traumatize them for the rest of their life. But from the records that we have, they actually seem to have at least a relatively normal marriage. Um, At least as far as public, uh, being out in public goes, they they would be seen together and uh, seen uh, making uh, expressions of affection to one another as well. There's no record of bitterness from Catherine either. And she uh, bore him two sons in the time uh, that they were together. However, it is worth noting that later in life, she actually becomes an outspoken proponent of children being able to choose their spouses, of being able to marry for love, not because of a completely prearranged situation. So that does seem to give a window in the fact that She definitely, from her experience, saw that this is not a great thing when a 49-year-old can just essentially choose to marry a 14-year-old for essentially for wealth. So it definitely impacted her in some way. So they were actually married for about 11 or 12 years before Brandon dies. Um, Catherine's about 25 when... uh, Her husband passes away, so they have been married 11, 12 years. They had two sons together. And uh, because of her combined inheritance from her parents, plus what she now receives uh, from Brandon, this is the point in her life where she is officially the second wealthiest person or woman in all of England, next to just Queen herself. And so up to this point in time, we're also talking about she has been under the rule of Henry VIII. And one of the things we're going to see as her life unfolds is a lot of the ups and downs of her life are going to depend on who is is the king or queen of England at the time. Uh, Those of you who know anything about the history of England, so much depends on the king or queen, whether they were more uh, allied with the Roman Catholic Church or with the Protestant cause, and if they were allied with the Protestant cause, which side of it and for what reasons. And so Brandon dies near the end of... Henry VIII's life as well. And so what we see shortly after Brandon dies, Henry VIII dies, and we see a transition into Edward VI's reign. And Edward can easily be said to be the most thorough Protestant of the English monarchs. And so during this period of time, Catherine herself also decides to wait on getting remarried. She ends up waiting about eight years before she finds a husband, which I find a little bit surprising. She's pretty young. Seems like that would have been more the social custom to get remarried relatively quickly. Not necessarily six weeks after your spouse passes away, but uh, she did seem to wait uh, quite a while. And the impression I get is that she enjoyed some of this freedom that she had. Uh, one of the podcasts I listened to, I didn't even look at the title of the podcast. I just used this search thing to look, do a meta search of all podcasts out there, and I found anything related to Catherine Willoughby. And one of them I late, one of us like this. Lady's just swearing a lot in this podcast, and it was re- kind of ridiculous and made it hard to take it serious. How much she was swearing and using just like foul language during it. And then I looked at the title; it was called "Vulgar History." <laughs> um, but um, one of the things that in the <laughs> one of the things this lady kept saying in this podcast was like she described something that Catherine did, and she's like, and she did it because she was rich. And it, like, she kept using this phrase, she could do it because she was rich. And it was true. She could get away with a lot of things that other people wouldn't have necessarily been able to get away with because of her extreme wealth. But the great and encouraging thing about Catherine during this time is the way that she uses that wealth. She uses it to support and encourage the Protestant cause in England, especially under the reign of Edward VI, where Protestantism is starting to flourish and refugees are starting to flood into England as there's more persecution on mainland Europe. She uses that wealth uh, to uh, strengthen this cause. Um, She personally, at one point in time, is paying the salaries of 25 uh, different uh, reform pastors out of her own checkbook. She's also giving money to support the refugees, and also not just using her money, but also using her influence. At one point in time, she helps a group of refugees uh, gain a charter, which allows them to have an officially recognized church that's not technically part of the Church of England. But she wasn't also just a woman who uh, used her money for these purposes, but she herself was actually quite outspoken about her opinions uh, regarding church reform as well. She was outspoken about her opinions on abolishing the church calendar, on removing images and relics from church, is on uh, destroying shrines, on reforming the clergy, and her desire to see the bishop locked up and put in jail. Um, she also, in this time, develops a close relationship with the, uh, with the uh, pastor, Hugh Latimer. You may be familiar with him. He's a well-known martyr from this era. Not a martyr yet, but uh, before he's uh, martyred under the reign of Mary, um, he, he and... Um, Catherine developed a close uh, friendship in which he is helping her to select some of those pastors that she is helping to install and then pay their salaries. And so for those of you who may are less familiar with Hugh Latimer, here's a brief description of his uh, life in ministry. He was not greatly interested in theology, which I mainly take to read that he's more of a preacher than he was a theologian, not that he didn't think theology was important. and But there was one cardinal doctrine to which he clung with a tenacity that which was the all-sufficiency of forgiveness of sins to the complete exclusion of any good works on the part of man. For though highly commendable, these superfluous... In, these are the works, are superfluous... I can say the word superfluous. I can even say superfluities. What's the point? He believed that good works were superfluous and irrelevant for salvation. He was a gospel guide, And if he, there was a hill he was going to die on, it was the sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation. And so he was helping her in these efforts to help the refugees to install pastors and spread word about the Reformed uh, convictions and truths of the Reformation. She wasn't idle, he wasn't idle, and there was a lot going on at this time under the reign of Edward VI. And also it's during this time that her opposition to uh, one of the bishops is, uh, becomes strong as well. And I have some really hilarious stories about her interactions with him, but you're going to have to wait till the end for those. But she is also involved in uh, pushing to have him locked up. So during this time, uh, again, I already mentioned that she has sons, and uh, so she has two sons or had had two sons with Charles Brandon. And as these boys are raised up, the influence of their mother is evident. They both are committed to the Protestant cause themselves and of the testimony from the people in their lives that they had a pure and genuine faith of their own. And when they got to the age and their early teens, they were sent off to study under Martin Buetzer. Martin Buetzer is one of those names from the Reformation. Not super well-known, maybe, to a common person at the level of, like, a Luther or a Calvin, but those who just come just a layer deep down in the Reformation. He is a well-known uh, pastor and theologian of the time. And uh, the elders here at, at our church, we actually read one of his books a few years back as part of our elder book study. And it was under his tutelage that her sons were uh, studying to then be trained up potentially for the gospel ministry themselves when they were unfortunately struck with the sweating sickness, uh, which was a disease. We actually don't think that there's anything quite like it that exists in our time. Don't know the exact structure of it, but it was a disease that had struck several times, and wherever it struck, there were high levels of fatalities. It was also quite... Uh, painful thing. It's described as having basically 24 hours of extreme fever and then 24 hours of extreme chills, which then typically ended with death. She tried to rush over to see her sons, um, but didn't make it in time, and they both ended up dying within an hour of one another. So she continued on strong during this period of time, uh, serving the Protestant cause, using her money for its good, and uh, doing what she could to uh, help reform the church. And toward the end of Edward's reign, she finally got around to a place where she was re- re- ready to marry again, and she found herself uh, marrying a man named Richard Birdie. Now this marriage was scandalous, in a sense, in its time, and in a very different way than her first marriage had been scandalous which is that Bertie was not of the English aristocracy. Uh, though he did have family uh, roots in the Prussian aristocracy. But we have to realize that there, there's lots of layers to the whole class structure in England at this time. So she didn't just like marry some guy who was sweeping the streets at the, that time. He was a man who was serving in her house, and he was technically a gentleman in her service. And he'd actually been, become the man who would uh, escort her to different places, as a woman of high rank in society, traveling around without a husband, it was uh, su- suiting for her to have someone with her as she went places, both for protection and just for uh, just the sake of stability with things. And this is the man that she ended up marrying. Uh, he was also committed to the Protestant cause, was uh, outspoken about his Protestant convictions, and it seems like they really just made a perfect match as far as their spiritual unity with one another in working toward all these things as they sought to see the church in England reformed. However, it wasn't long after their marriage that we see a new shift in the monarchy. Edward passes away after just six years as the king, and then comes his uh, half-sister, Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary was... um, daughter of Catherine Aragon, probably pretty bitter towards the way that her mom had been treated by Henry VIII, and also committed to the Catholic Church. And so she pours everything she can in to turning England back to the Roman Catholic Church, and she gets that name Bloody Mary for the first fierce persecutions that she um, put forth in her life. One historian said that she relentlessly persecuted to the death the Reformed confessors. And there were many martyrs that uh, died at her hand. And it was also under her reign that Bishop Gardner, that, that bishop that Catherine had such a, uh, a terrible relationship with, uh, is then released and brought back. And he is a part of the way that she employs a lot of her persecution and a lot of her bringing uh, the Roman Catholicism back into England. And uh, one of the first things that Gardner... First, families that Gardner goes after is Catherine and her husband. Now, I don't know a whole lot about how Mary went about her uh, persecution of Protestants, but even as the queen, she had to be, there were probably certain relationships that had to be handled more diplomatically than others. And when we see a Gardner uh, going after uh, Catherine and her husband, uh, Bertie, we see that he tries to take a more um, strategic approach, not addressing them head-on because of their Protestantism, but rather he tries to find a, a political way of getting them locked up. Well, his attempt at being clever didn't work so well, and his whole plan backfired, and uh, he ends up at, the, at what was supposed to be a scheme to get uh, Richard Bertie and Catherine imprisoned ends up being him granting Richard Bertie permission to go over to Europe. Now, the, the, the release that he gives to them does not include Catherine in the plan, so there's still some, some work to be done to get both of them out of the country, but they're watching the persecution. They're watching things go in a dark direction under Mary. So now with Bertie having uh, actually a permission directly from the queen to go into Europe, the, the tough part of this was getting Catherine out with him. And this is where uh, one of the more suspenseful scenes of her life that does read by, like a play-by-play from a movie. And so in an effort to escape to the Rhineland, uh, where they have uh, a potential shelter with the Duke of Cleves, they have to make a midnight escape. A midnight escape that, like so many movies, uh, there was a leak from one of the servants to someone in authority to then send the guards after them but they manage in their escape through the night to make it to the boat without getting caught, and they they get on a rickety boat, all cloaked up, ready to make the passage across the sea, only to get part way out to sea and to have to come back. Twice. And then upon getting back into England, uh, they then are nearly searched by a guard, and someone on the boat managed to convince him not to do a search of the boat. So then they finally make it across the sea, but as they get there, they don't have any direct connections at the port. They also need to be discreet because they don't want to be seen or recognized by anybody and turned in to the authorities or sent back to England. And I do believe that uh, Queen Mary has even sent some of her um, her military to go try to find them at well. So they have to be discreet, and they don't speak the language. So they're actually wandering in this small little group from town to town. And they finally get, are getting near to where they're supposed to be, but no, one's, no one in any of the homes over there in the Rhineland are taking them in or giving them shelter. Uh, they also have their one-year-old daughter with them. And finally, Bertie uh, hears some young schoolboys speaking Latin. So he finds a point of connection in which he can communicate with them. He's able to communicate enough to where these boys are able to take them to the house of the person that they have the connection with. And they're brought in. They're given the food, the shelter, everything they need to recover from this tumultuous journey. And then the entire town ends up being rebuked by the local pastor the following Sunday for not showing this family more hospitality. <laughs> so they're finally there in relative safety. safety, And they are in the town of Weissel. Weissel. Uh, and uh, and uh, as they settle in there, other exiles from England start meeting them. And they end up drawing about 100 exiles to where they're at, one of them being another man known in Reformed circles, Miles Coverdale. I do believe he uh, translated the English Bible, or he was responsible for one of the translations of the English Bible. Though it is interesting because while most exiles would have fled to to, uh, countries and places more directly, siding with the Reformed side of the Protestant Reformation, uh, they're in more of Lutheran territory. And we would like to hope and think that the Reformed and the Lutherans, with a common enemy of the Church of Rome, with so much in common with their belief in Scripture and salvation through Christ alone, would be uh, happily helping one another in dire circumstances. Uh, But unfortunately, Lutheran territories were not that friendly to people who were more on the reformed side of the Protestant Reformation. And they actually, as they were drawing more and more English exiles into this location, they started getting more heat and pressure from different uh, people on the Lutheran side of the Reformation. But fortunately, Philip Melanchthon, another name from the Reformation story, uh, steps up. And though he is clearly on the Lutheran side of things, he sends a letter directly to the authorities in that region requesting that they be given charitable treatment however they ended up only settling there for a short period of time before they did try to uh, relocate in a place that was going to be more friendly so they eventually make it to poland and that that trip itself ends up having a lot of drama and suspense in itself one of the accounts i was reading um basically they their carriage is attacked uh, oh yeah it's not Catherine wasn't with him but Bertie is traveling, his carriage is attacked, he ends up jumping out one side and climbing, if I read it correctly, he essentially climbs up a ladder and is fighting people off the ladder with his sword, uh, trying to keep them away until a bunch of authorities show up and like, calm the riot that's happening around the uh, attack of their carriage. Uh, so they eventually make it to Poland where they have a connection uh, with John Alasco, another one of these names from the Reformation uh, history. Who, is also, who himself has connections with the king of Poland. So through this connection with Alaska, they're able to get united with the king of Poland, and in their connection with the king of Poland, they end up being honored with the earldom of Crozen. And it's there that they remain for the duration of Mary I's reign in England. So Catherine and um, Bertie, after Mary I dies, and Elizabeth I takes the throne, they make their, their way back to England, and it's important to note that though Elizabeth was on the Protestant side of things, she also wasn't too kind to the Puritans. She wasn't too kind to those who would want to, to see the Reformation worked out to its fullest conclusions. She didn't believe in some of the uh, reforms of worship that the Reformed side of the church wanted to see enacted and to put it short, her and Catherine didn't get along too well. One of the historians that I read uh, noted that uh, you know, both being women of high rank uh, and knowing each other walking in the same cir- circles as one another just seemed to be like sandpaper to one another. And they said that if Catherine would say, this is red, uh, Elizabeth would say, it is black. And that is just the kind of relationship that they had with one another. And one of the points of tension that manifested itself in their relationship with one another was that Catherine, her husband having not been of the nobility when they got married, was throughout her life trying to get him officially recognized as a duke. And that would have most easily been done through Elizabeth. Yet, for her entire life, Elizabeth refused to grant this to Catherine Willoughby. So so under the reign of Elizabeth, um, I'm sure that Catherine continued work in her reforming efforts Yet, of all the sources that I read, they all kind of seem to taper off in describing what that actually looked like under the reign of Elizabeth. I don't know if Catherine was just working in more covert ways, given that she wasn't in complete agreement with the queen, or if she had maybe tempered some of her convictions. It just doesn't become, it's just really not that clear. But uh, that is, uh, she dies under the reign of Elizabeth. And this is how Rebecca Van Dutteward summarizes the end of Catherine's life. Catherine spent the last years of her life supporting the reconstruction of English Protestantism. She supported all Protestants, including dissenters and other Christians outside the Church of England, interceding for ministers who preached without a government license. Having been fruitful when free and faithful when persecuted, the Duchess died September 19, 1580. So that's her death. So, one last comment about her life uh, story itself. Oftentimes, the legacy of parents is seen through, through their children. We know that her two earlier sons had died. She did have another son with uh, Bertie, and his name was a good one. You guys should consider this one next time anybody out here is having a child. It's uh, Peregrine. Okay? So uh, just keep that one in mind, keep it to yourself, um, and and, and use it when you're having a son. And uh, so her her son, Peregrine, it's just uh, so encouraging to hear the testimony of his life after his mom mom died, that he went on to live a life that was characterized by devotion and faithfulness to Christ. Uh, He served in the British military, served with great honor, and there's testimony after testimony of his courage, strength, and devotion to the Christian faith. So that's the uh, sketch of Catherine Willoughby's life. So I'm going to spend the rest of this morning looking more thematically at some of the stories of her life. But before that, anything that I can clarify for anyone? Anybody have any questions? All right. So I have uh, thematically organized this. I tried to be a little bit... uh, I noticed an alliterative pattern. I had compassion, courage, conviction, and then I had wit as the other one. And I was like, oh, well, cleverness could be like that, but cleverness does, doesn't have the same ring as wit. So let's begin, though, with her cleverness and wit. Now, like I mentioned, uh, the, there were a lot of fun interactions with that Bishop Gardner. But one thing to note is that she, in general, had a reputation of being a a woman of uh, charming wit. One of the testimonies says that um, the Duchess was distinguished for liveliness of disposition and had a natural turn for pleasantry, in which she often indulged. By her playful sallies of wit, she enlivened the social circles, and she could employ irony and sarcasm with great effect. And the only actual examples I have, I have of this are all targeted at Bishop Gardner. So one of the things is, uh, she had a little, a little cute puppy, and she named him Gardner. And she was known for going around town with her uh, Protestant friends and, Gardner, sit! Gardner, roll over! <laughs> and just uh, creating these scenes where everybody was in uproarious laughter over this little dog Gardner, uh, who she would create these scenes about. It's also in every source I read about her life, there was this uh, famous scene from a dinner party. If you've ever watched anything British, you know that when these uppity rich people have these dinners, you don't just go sit with your spouse, you get placed. Well, apparently, at this dinner, they were allowing the women to choose who they would sit with. And they said, Women, choose who you would most uh, choose to sit next to the person you most love. And But one of the rules was you couldn't sit with your husband. And she said, well, since I cannot sit with my husband whom I love the most, I will choose the man who I love the least. <laughs> Bishop Gardner. <laughs> and one can just see the like expression of horror on his face. And I can also picture the rest of that dinner because she's now said I'm going to sit next to him and I can just imagine her just having, being the life of the party, telling all sorts of stories, having to sit next to him and him just sitting there with this dour look on his face the entire time. She was also known to have openly mocked him while he was in the tower locked up under the reign of Edward VI. And I have to admit, some of us might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like very... Christian way to engage and interact with one of our enemies. Maybe it wasn't. I wasn't there. I don't know all the details. It is important to know that this is a man who was responsible for the death of some of her dear and beloved friends, a man who had opposed every effort of the reformed cause to see reformation in the Church of England, and who had used plenty of uh, dirty schemes to accomplish his ends and who she regularly had to rub shoulders with in society. And I think she had come to a place where she had to decide, am I going to just smile and pretend that everything's all right, that we get along just well, or am I going to just be open and direct about the status of our relationship? And that's how I like to read that. Uh, But it is also important to know that though she was a clever woman, known for her intelligence and her wit, she was also a woman of deep compassion, Story after story tells about how uh, she, though of the highest rank of society, was a servant of others. She was incredibly generous with her money and her efforts towards the Protestant cause. Uh, when Catherine Parr died, that was the sixth wife of Henry VIII, so she dies after Henry VIII. Edward takes the throne, she's no longer you know, officially in the in place of the highest status. Then she dies. The first person, the person that she had requested to take the custody of her daughter was Catherine Willoughby. So uh, if that testifies to uh, the trust that some had for her, uh, a woman of great character and esteem, Catherine Parr, who I didn't actually get to mention this earlier, but Catherine Parr really was an honorable woman. She, All of her ladies-in-waiting uh, were required to sit through... Uh, Well, to participate in daily Chapel and hear the preaching of men like Hugh Latimer. So Catherine Parr herself had had a huge influence on many of the women of that time, including Catherine Willoughby. Catherine Parr had had a great influence on uh, Lady Jane Grey as well. And Elizabeth even is someone else who she'd had influence on. So to have a woman of such uh, notable character as uh, Catherine Parr, entrusting Catherine Willoughby with her daughter upon her own death, uh, says a lot. And another scene which testifies to the compassion and the tenderness and the conviction of Catherine Willoughby would be the fact that she personally nursed Martin Bucer on his deathbed. One of my sources said that when we enter the sick chamber of the venerable Bucer, we see her personally attending him by Dan and by night, relieving his wants by her assiduous ministry, reaching the healing draught, propping his head, smoothing his pillow, wiping from his pallid face the cold dews of death, whispering in his ears the consolation of the gospel, doing everything that a fellow creature could do to soften the agonies of his dying bed. And again, it is especially notable to think that a woman of her high rank would be the person personally tending a man like Martin Butzer on his deathbed. So she was a woman of cleverness and wit. She was a woman of compassion. She was also a woman of courage. A lot of this was evident throughout the story of her life that I told. There was the entire scene in Escaping from Mary. She had the courage to marry Berkey, uh, despite public pushback. She had the courage to make her beliefs and her convictions publicly known, despite much public heat over those matters. You have to think, when Mary was uh, rising in ascendance and, uh, as the queen and beginning to persecute Protestants, it A lot of the time, all that you had to do to escape that was just recant your beliefs. How easily that would have been. Yet she stood and had the courage to uh, maintain a stance against Mary. And so not only was she a woman of cleverness and wit, of compassion and courage, uh, she was also a woman of deep conviction. I've mentioned a lot that she was uh, strongly behind the Protestant cause. And she was a woman with strong theological beliefs and convictions. This was known from a young age uh, for her. And uh, even under Henry VIII, who was Protestant, but not as thoroughly Protestant as we would have hoped that he would have been and not reforming the church to the extent uh, that we would have wished, uh, she actually nearly came into trouble for her open views on the Lord's Supper. And I think she was, yeah, she was less than 25 at that point in time. It just kind of indicates that she was a thoughtful woman who was actually engaging in theological ideas and uh, discussion and not doing it privately, but doing it publicly as well. Like I also mentioned, she was uh, heavily active in promoting uh, views during Edward's reign, supporting the Protestant cause, coming alongside the refugees. And she put her money where her mouth was. She, She poured heavily into... Uh, publishing not just supporting refugees, not just paying pastors' salaries, but she was also known for privately printing uh, works of men like Hugh Latimer. So one of the collections of uh, Hugh Latimer's sermons that we have, there's actually uh, an engraving from the opening page, and there's a the page consists of a, a picture of Hugh Latimer preaching to Edward VI, and then underneath it there is uh, essentially a, a a note of gratitude to Catherine Willoughby, who had paid for the printing of his sermons. Uh, but she didn't just print the sermons of men like him Latimer. She also uh, was the one who responsible for the publishing of Catherine Parr's Lamentations of a Sinner. So Catherine Parr, that sixth wife of Henry VIII, uh, notable for, the, for her uh, Christian character and her commitment to the Protestant cause, was also a writer herself. And so Catherine Willoughby also privately published Uh, some of the works that she had written as well. And the last thing I would like to say about Catherine Willoughby, again, it breaks from the alliteration of the seas, is that you take nothing else away from life of her, is that she was a person of true and sincere faith. And the greatest testimony that I saw of that in all of my reading was In a letter of response that she wrote after the death of her two sons. Remember, they were early to mid teens. They both died within an hour of each other. And this was only three years after her first husband, Charles Brandon, had died. And in this circumstance, she writes a letter to a pastor friend of hers. And in this letter, she said the following I give God thanks for all his benefits which it has pleased him to heap upon me, and truly take this, his last, and to the first sight the most sharp and bitter punishment, not for the least of his benefits, inasmuch as I have never been so well taught by any other before to know his power, his love, his mercy, and my own wickedness, in that wretched state that without him I should endure here. Those are the words of a person of true faith. You can't make that stuff up. To cling to God's goodness, and his faithfulness, amid one of life's most tragic events, the death of her two beloved sons to be able to testify that God was even using that to shape her to be more like Christ, and that ultimately she had to recognize that even the death of her sons was a good gift from God. (laughs) It's the kind of woman she was. I'm so glad that we have such a thorough record of her life to be able to learn from her and to see of all the ways that God was faithful to her and used her mightily for his cause. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do give you thanks again for this morning that you have called us here to worship, all of us here sinners saved by the grace of Christ. Father, we do give you thanks for all of the men and women throughout church history who have stood firm upon the gospel, who have given their lives to the service of your church and seen the proclamation of your word throughout the world. We thank you even for Catherine Willoughby today and her testimony to your goodness Father, I pray that today that we would remember that uh, we worship the same God as Catherine Willoughby and that uh, you are the same God who are so merciful and kind to us. And I pray that we would be filled with faith today, even as we gather to worship you, to sing your praise, to cry out to you in prayer, and to hear your word boldly proclaimed. May we receive it with gladness. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.